1: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In College Coach Conversation. Uh, I'm very excited to be with you today. It feels like forever since I hosted the show, although it's really only been two weeks, but feels like it's been a while. Um, The holidays are here. In fact, the holidays for many are already in the rearview mirror, but most seniors are still on vacation. Certainly juniors are still on vacation. Everybody else is still on vacation. But Most importantly, I do hope those of you who are listening who are seniors have already completed all of your work, um, possibly even submitted all of your applications, and now you are relaxing. Um, We are going to be talking through some things that will be, I think, really um, interesting to those of you who have submitted your applications, including whether or not you could qualify for in-state tuition at any of those out-of-state schools you may have applied to. And in office hours, we're actually going to be talking about making changes uh, to applications that have been submitted and sending new information. But in my first segment, in our first segment today, uh, for those of you who are maybe ready to submit um, but haven't quite gotten to the point of pressing the button or those of you who aren't, yet seniors, so this is something for the future, I'm really excited to um, introduce my colleague and former Barnard College Admissions Officer, Elise Krantz, to the show today to talk to us about kind of the nuts and bolts of submitting applications, both right before you do it and then immediately after. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. Well, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's always a treat to have you on the show. Thank you. All right. So, first things first, we have people who are out there who maybe have almost finished their applications or they are basically ready to go and they haven't yet pressed submit. So, from your perspective, anything important to think about uh, in terms of last minute things to do before you press that button?
2: Absolutely. Um, on whether you're applying using a school-specific application or the Common application or the Coalition application, it's really important that you do take that those final few minutes before you hit submit to do a, a preview of your application. And both the Common App and the Coalition make it pretty easy to do that, On the common application, you can look for a, um, when you're on the review and submit page, even though You're hitting the submit button, and you think, oh, no, this is it. I'm actually submitting. It will walk you through a PDF first of your full application for that one individual school, and that's the perfect opportunity to take a moment, maybe print it out, and look at it on paper just to make sure that the formatting looks correct, that nothing is being truncated or cut off, and that it looks exactly the way you intend it to look before you submit it. And for the coalition, it's a little bit different um, because they use the locker for all PDF creations, but once you're in your coalition application, you can click on a button um, that says, near the, underneath the school that you're applying to, that says generate application PDF. And then it will do so, it puts it in your locker, you can review it there, and then you can go through the submission process
1: awesome and one of the things we talked about before the show was is there anything specific to check for um either right before you press submit or after aside from um doing the final review to make sure that all your i's are dotted and your t's are crossed um there are some tricky things with a couple of schools and i and i wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little more about that
2: absolutely so this is, this is more common, I would say, with the common application than with the coalition, which is a little more straightforward in terms of it's one application that you hit submit and it's hard to miss anything before you hit submit because it won't let you hit submit until you see all of those check marks. But on the common application, it's it's not uh, unusual to see some colleges divide up their submission process into two parts. For example, I was emailing with a student about the University of Delaware's application, and she said, I'm previewing my application, but I can't see my essays. Where are my Delaware essays? And that's Mm -hmm. because Delaware has a two-part submission process. So when you're on the Delaware section of the supplemental application, you first have to submit the main part of the common application, and then you'll notice a second section underneath that that is just for your writing supplement for the University of Delaware. So as you're going through your submission process, you just want to make sure that you're actually seeing check marks on all of the sections across all of the application and just keeping in mind that there might be additional schools that have like Delaware the two part process
1: yeah it feels that feels like a vestige from a uh, past iteration of the common app because I do remember that there used to be um, where you there were schools where it was a hand in hand right you submitted the main application and then the supplement you had to submit at the same time and then there were other schools where you submitted the main and then the supplement went later and I think a lot of schools have wisely done away with that because it just feels like there's so many opportunities for screw ups but um, important to keep your eyes open for that for sure. Uh-huh. One, um, one question for you for those students who may be a applied in early rounds, whether priority or early action or early decision, and now they are submitting some regular decision applications, Um, can they change their application um, from the version that they sent in those early rounds before they send it to um, this next round of regular decision schools?
2: Yes, and it's very easy to do so. I'll start with the coalition first. So when you're in the coalition, you have to go back into your profile to make any changes because the school-specific applications draw information from your profile to populate their application form. So if there's anything you want to update first for any additional schools, just head into your profile, make those edits, and then when you go into your new application, uh, you'll see that everything will be pulled in correctly. For the common application, um it's a similar process. You would go into your common application tab, and let's say it's common. Sometimes students might want to update um, something in their activities page, or maybe they want to modify their essay a little bit. So they would just go into that section of the common application, hit the edit button, go in, make any changes that they need to do, and then after they save it, anything, any new application that they submit that now will have that updated information.
1: Excellent. Right. So there was a time already, a lo- it feels like a long time ago, where you were limited to the number of times you could update your common app. Um, and I think it was something like three maybe, and then it was locked for uh-huh. good. And I know in theory, the idea was they didn't want students feeling like they have to go back and keep working on the application. But in practice, it was a total disaster, I thought, a nightmare caused way too much stress, and they like they it got rid of that. So, so the good news is you can update it as many times as you would like, although in theory, once you've got the application done, you shouldn't typically have to do much more to it than that.
2: Um, right. Okay. I know sometimes it's like with the testing page. Sometimes that mm-hmm. section students will also have to go back because if, let's say, you're applying to some – Test optional schools. Even though most colleges will block that information when they're uploading your application, it's always good to be safe. Maybe remove your test scores before you submit it to your test optional school. And then when you're applying to a school that requires testing, put those scores back in. So yes, making multiple edits is very easy now on the common application.
1: Right. And great point. Great point about that. All right. So what about after you press submit? um, What are the things that you are suggesting students pay attention to? Um,
2: It's common for students to need to, for their own benefit or sometimes for their school guidance office, the school counseling office, to have proof that they submitted the application. Um, And so it's always good to know where that information lies. Um, So on the coalition application, after you have submitted, you will, when you go back onto your colleges page, and it shows the list of all of your coalition applications, you should first see, it should say underneath your colleges, it will say progress. 100%, and then it will say submitted with a date. And then you can even click a button that says view submission, and it will tell you exactly the time you submitted, the day you submitted. You can print out that page, have it for your records, just in case there's any question about that that you need for your high school. For the common application, in addition to looking for those green check marks to make sure that you see checks next to all of the review and submit for both supplements as well as the main common application, you can also go on to the dashboard tab. We don't use it very often, but it's at the top of your common application screen. There's all those tabs at the top. And so when you're on there, you should see green check marks in the application column. But the neat thing is, is when you click on an individual school, right now I'm just looking at a sample application here, I clicked on Drexel University for a particular student, and I see, okay, she submitted that early action, and it tells me exactly the date. And it also provides a PDF of that exact application. So she has that for her records as well
1: interesting and what I will throw out a plea one more time here because this is great and you can create a record of when you submitted and it will show the day and the time but I am seeing on and I don't know Elise if you've been on this and, and seen it as well I've, I've seen um, some chatter on the Facebook counselors group which is a closed group for people who are do the work that, that Elise and I do for a living about students pressing submit on the day that the application is due but the school not receiving it um, until a day or two after the the application deadline. Um, I've seen it also with sometimes school submissions at places where they require all everything to be in by that date. And so my plea to you all listening is this, get it in before the deadline. Do not wait for the last day to submit. Try to be submitting a day or two ahead. You don't have to submit significantly ahead of time, but... You just don't ever want to be in a situation where you're saying to the school, look, I did it, and here it is, and they're saying, but we didn't receive it by then, and and you may lose out, even with the proof. So just don't put yourself in that position where, you know, on that specific day and time because you waited so long that there might be any wiggle room um, at all. So just throwing that out there. Um mm-hmm. What about, um, I mean, is there any way to tell if it's been received? I know that in the Common App, sometimes there's a way to see that, like, you submitted it, and then when the school has downloaded it, is that still a possibility?
2: Yes, you can. It's great. It's on the dashboard page, um, Mm -hmm. the dashboard tab. And so, for example, for the Drexel application I was looking at before, it it says here downloaded October 20th. So it's she knows then that it's been received. And for that is a question that going to the point you were making before about students and counselors worrying the students submitted it on the deadline, but they're seeing downloaded and they're seeing it the day after the deadline. For yep. many colleges, they don't download. I mean, no, they're not downloading at midnight. You know, you might be submitting it at 1159, but they're they're waiting to download it maybe the next day. And that's mm-hmm. normal for most colleges. So I wouldn't, if you're seeing that, and, and you're worried, oh, no, it's not being counted, for most universities, you're okay. You know, they will accept your application because you did submit it by the deadline. It's their process that's maybe a day or too late, and that's usually okay. But you can see um, that downloaded date on the common application.
1: Yeah, and I probably just caused... Unnecessary (laughs) panic. I I really didn't mean to. Um, In the cases that I'm talking about that were showing up on the on the Facebook counselors group, it was primarily with um, special programs with early priority deadlines. Um, where the student wasn't not being considered, but was maybe not being considered for that early deadline um, because it was showing up as not being downloaded or they not them not receiving it for a couple of days afterwards. So it was very unique situations. I think you're spot on. most schools do not have this. You want to pay attention to whether the schools say that it must be received by. Um, uh-huh. everything must be received by. There are a handful of schools. Elon comes to mind. Michigan comes to mind. If you're going to be in their early pools, they want everything by that deadline, including your test scores officially submitted from the testing centers. Whereas at many, many, many schools, including Penn, for example, where I used to work, we routinely got stuff after the official deadline. So, so long as the student had applied by the deadline, the other stuff might come in within the next week or two, and that was fine. But we, you know, so we were not really sticklers about that. And I would say that most colleges are not really sticklers about that. But still, get it in before the deadline. Um, Oh, and it's
2: just, may may I also just add in here, there are deadline differences on the common application versus the coalition. The common application, it is eleven fifty nine the day of the deadline in your time zone, wherever you as the applicant happen to live. That's your deadline. But on the coalition, it's 1159 Pacific time regardless of where you live and regardless of where the college is that you're applying to. That's just another small wrinkle to bear in mind and another reason not to wait until 11.59. Just do it the day before and you won't have to worry about it.
1: Uh, Yes, I love it. Good advice. Okay. (laughs) What about portals? Um, Some schools have these. What can you tell us about portals? Right, so a lot of schools now provide
2: these great resources for students once they apply and submit their common or coalition application they are provided they are uh, provided with a login information a username and a password to basically access their application account online so that they can see and track what has been received by the college. It will often say, okay, here we have your teacher recommendation number one, but we haven't received number two yet. Um, And they will often also release decisions through the portal. Um, It's also possible, I know this was one of the questions that we were going to talk about, but it ties in well here. Some portals do allow you to update your application through that that website. So if you need to make an adjustment for whatever reason, for grades or an activity, something like that, you can do it directly through the portal. So just beware when you're applying. Be on the lookout for an email confirmation from the school. Don't just trash that email. Put it in a safe place in your inbox or maybe make a special folder for all of your college uh, Usernames and passwords, so that you have that information, because they will. Most colleges will be connecting with students through portals and through email to follow up with anything re- related to their applications.
1: Yes. So keep your eyes also on your um, junk email folder, because your those emails could go there, and you definitely do not want to miss them. Very quickly, any advice around updating schools with new information if they don't have a portal?
2: Usually, I find a simple email to the admissions office is all it takes, as long as you include your name and some kind of identifying information, whether it's the name of your high school as well as your birth date. Um, You don't have to put a social security number through the email if you're not comfortable with that, but usually, name, high school, and birth date is all you need, and then emailing them whatever needs to be included and ask them to kindly add that to your application and they will usually scan it and add it to your digital file because most colleges read online nowadays so but it's pretty straightforward doing
1: it that way All right, great advice as always Elise thank you so much for um, sharing what you know I learned something new about uh, deadlines for the coalition versus the uh, common application so Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you joining us today
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks,
1: Beth. All right. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to be talking about whether or not you can qualify for in-state tuition as an out-of-state student. So don't go away.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's one 866 Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. I am excited to welcome my ca- my colleague. I almost said my Kathy Ruby, but you are my Kathy <laughs> Ruby. But my colleague, who is a frequent guest when I host, and she's a former financial aid officer at St. Olaf uh out there in minnesota where she has returned deserting me in new england um so we're missing you here in new england but happy for you to be returning to your your home um and welcome how are you
4: i'm great beth happy to be here
1: all right. Good. Well, um, one of the big things that we see at this time of year is students are starting to get into colleges Is we see students who've applied to out of state state schools uh, and they are excited about going and immediately looking for ways in which they can establish residency in the state so that they can pay in-state tuition rather than out-of-state tuition, because usually the in-state tuition is significantly cheaper. In some cases, it's unbelievably cheaper. and others, (laughs) it still represents a a nice discount. Um, But uh, I guess I was curious about, to me, this feels like one of those urban myths, because if you could do that that easily, then everyone would do it. Um, Right. You know, so what are some common misperceptions about this idea?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there are quite a few misperceptions, and and just to clarify as we get started, we're mostly going to be talking today about undergraduate students, so sort of the traditional dependent undergraduate students, and we can, if we have time at the end, we can talk a little bit about graduate students. But, um, you know, a couple of the common myths that are out there, sort of the urban urban legends, Um, is that if a parent owns property in a state or if they buy Mm -hmm. some property in a state, um, and sometimes people will even say, oh, I'm going to buy a property to rent to my kids when they're in college, right, Um, Mm -hmm. that that will get you in-state residency. Um, That's not the case. Um, Or sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I'll have a parent say, well, my student's planning to stay in the town where they're going to college and they're going to work there that summer, so they should be able to get in-state tuition the second year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so those are the most common misperceptions for sure.
1: Right. Again, we will remind people if it sounds too good to be true, it generally is. If it was as simple yeah. as spending your summer on your college town, working a job, and now suddenly, boom, you're in state, everyone would do it. And there's a Or living with relatives.
4: Yeah.
1: Or living with yes. relatives. That's the other one. Yes. Right. Right. Big one. All right. So those are the misperceptions, but I do know that someone can get in state tuition. So so how does that happen if someone is able to get in state tuition at an out of state yeah. school?
4: And it and it does happen sometimes. I mean, it takes quite a bit of work, but it can happen sometimes. So first let's let's talk about a concept that's pretty much the basis for determination of residency in in every state. Um and it's called domicile. And so I actually looked it up and the the definition in law is that it's a legal permanent resident. Um, or your, your legal permanent residence is your domicile. Mm-hmm. So okay. if you think about why it is that public institutions offer different tuition, you know, one tuition for in-state people and a different tuition for out-of-state students, it's really based on this idea of domicile. So if you're permanently residing in a state, um, you pay taxes there, you're likely going to contribute to the economy there, um, and it's more likely that you're going to stay there in that state and continue to contribute to that state's economy after you graduate. Um, so the idea is since your tax dollars are helping to support that school um, and the education that you're receiving from the school is a public good, then you should pay less for it than someone who comes in from another state. And in many most cases, you're actually paying less than what it actually costs to educate someone at that school. Got it. Um, so, yeah, so in order to receive in-state tuition, you have to prove that you are actually domiciled in a state.
1: So with that in mind, what does it mean to be domiciled in a specific state? I mean, if you go there for school and you're there and then you spend the summer you're there year round, is that but that doesn't right. really and, usually and, qualify and, you for that.
2: Yeah,
4: I mean, it can feel that way cuz you're a young adult and you may you may really like the state that you've moved mm-hmm. to, right? So maybe you mm-hmm. think I am going to be domiciled here. And and yes. that's fair. Um, but it, to, to technically be domiciled in order to get in-state tuition, it varies a little bit state by state, um, but most commonly you have to live and work there, you have to pay income taxes, you have to register to vote, get your driver's license, all the things you would do if you have permanently moved to a place, Um and so just owning a vacation home and paying property tax is not in itself enough to establish domicile. It might add to your argument for domicile. Paying property mm-hmm. tax could, um, but it's not on its own going to establish domicile for you. Um, and then in most states, you have to have established domicile for 12 months, at least 12 months prior to actually starting classes. So that's, that's the tricky piece. Um, the other sort of the... The definition of domiciled, in most states, in fact, I think all states, um, a traditional dependent undergraduate student's domicile is based on where their parents live. So that's, that's the crux of the issue, is that if you're 18 years old um, and you're being claimed by your parents on your, their taxes, then your domicile is based on where they live. Because think about it, you're 18, you haven't really contributed to any state's economy yet, so you don't, right. you're not really domiciled anywhere. Right. Um, and so for most states, the definition of a dependent student, uh, many times it'll match the federal definition for financial aid purposes, which means if you're under 24, um, and you're not married and you don't have dependents of your own and you're not in the military, military is often an exception by the way, um, then you're, you're considered a dependent student on your parents. And so your domicile is based on where they live.
1: Right, and then that whole question of how can you be um, emancipated is uh, for a whole other show, which I think we have yes. covered before. Um, yeah. I the think other, so. right? Too good to be true. Oh well, I'll just be declared an emancipated student, and then I will qualify for tons of financial aid, and my parents won't have to pay. <laughs> nope, that doesn't work nope. either. Okay. <laughs> All right. So a traditional undergraduate wants to establish domicile and get charged in-state tuition. How do they go about doing it? Okay, Okay. so,
4: yeah, I mean, it, it really does vary by state, but there are, again, some commonalities. So the first thing probably to do is to, and you can do this as you're getting admitted to a school, is just research what that state's residency requirements are. Um, and I usually do it by just going to the main public flagship university or to the university system in a, col- in a state. You know, if it's a whole system of universities, you can go to their website and search for residency requirements. And usually within those residency requirements, they will outline how it is you might petition for in-state residency and what will be required. Um, so and then, and then don't forget, you know, when you're applying to those schools and many students already have, they're actually establishing your residency as you're being admitted as well. So for some states, you have to fill out some separate sort of application that establishes your residency. For others, it's just part of the admission process sort of integrated into the application. So your residency is established in the beginning, and then if you need to change it, then there's generally a petition process. Right, Um, okay. Yeah, and so in terms of this question of, okay, well, what if I just become emancipated? So when it comes to um, establishing domicile, you would have to become emancipated from your parents in that they could no longer claim you on their taxes. But it's not just that they stopped claiming you. It's that you also have to be able to show that you had the income or or some assets um, to provide more than half of your own support. So you have to be able to show that you actually could support yourself. And that usually includes not just paying your rent and your food, but it also usually includes, you know, you could have covered half of your tuition with your income or your assets, whatever they were. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you've got to also establish your domicile. You've got to register to vote. You've got to get a driver's license, maybe rent an apartment. Um, And then finally, this is the part that's the hardest for most people, is that you have to prove that you were domiciled for some period of time. And again, it's usually 12 months prior to enrolling in classes. So if you're really serious about getting in-state tuition, you're going to have to establish independence and then probably take some time off to work and support yourself and establish domicile. Um, there are some states that have slightly strict, less strict rules than that. They're a little more mm-hmm. lenient. Um, for instance, I know quite a few students who've gone to Montana and then become in-state. And I think Montana lets you, you can attend college part-time and work. You still have to support yourself, but you can at least be taking a few classes while you're doing that um but you think about that i mean all of this is public policy right so mm-hmm. montana is a state where you know they're encouraging people to move to montana right i mean they they would right. like to get young people moving into montana so they're going to do what they can to make it a little easier to get in-state residency because they're trying to encourage people to stay. And who wouldn't, by the way? It's beautiful.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I will tell you that my nephew is actually currently doing exactly this. So he is spending his first year there working part-time, taking some classes, and Mm -hmm. establishing domicile, and then he will be in-state as of next year. So they actually do make it somewhat easy there. And to your point, there's a reason for that because it's good for the state. Whereas... You know, the UC system, um, they already have too many students who want to go from <laughs> California. They're yep. not looking for you to come and establish residency and take advantage of it as well. Right. Um, all right. Other ways to pay in-state tuition? Of course. And I actually
4: think this is probably a, a better path to take if you're really trying to pay less than out-of-state tuition, then, then it's, again, what do I always say? It's all about the list of colleges. So um, yep. you might not be charged in-state tuition or considered an in-state resident, but there are ways to get a discount on the out-of-state tuition that can bring you close to or actually equal to in-state residency. So, of course, merit scholarships, right? Um, you know, I think 15, 20 years ago, I used to say, oh, public universities don't offer merit scholarships. And now they certainly do, and and many of them offer them to out-of-state residents because if they offer you a discount, they still get more revenue than they would from an in-state student. So Mm -hmm. it's a win-win situation. Um, But you've got to apply to colleges that do that and where you're a strong student for them. Um, I think the biggest, or the biggest, the most popular program these days, or the one we've heard about the most, is the University of Maine. Again, mm-hmm. think of Maine, the oldest state in the nation, I believe, demographically, so they're trying to encourage 18 to 22-year-olds to come to their state, so they have a flagship match program, where if you apply by December 1st and you meet certain minimum requirements, they will essentially offer you a scholarship that will bring you down to what you'd pay at your flagship public university. Um, Oglethorpe University is actually a private college, I think they're in Georgia, and they're doing something similar. So. You just have to keep your, keep your eyes out for those kinds of things. Also, take a look at regional reciprocity programs, um, and you can either go to your state's higher education agency website to see what you can find, or actually, I like the website, um, NASFA, National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, N-A-S-F-A-A dot O-R-G, and when you get there, there's a section called Students, Parents, and Counselors, and then if you select financial aid in your state, there's a whole section on state and regional exchange programs that they keep up to date, and they give you links to to your state and where you can learn about those programs. So um, even those reciprocity programs, though, sometimes they're not automatic. Sometimes they're actually a form of merit aid as well. So a college might participate, but they only give reciprocity to the students they want the most.
1: And the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of times with these reciprocity agreements, they're typically not at the big flagship schools, right? So they're not at the schools that if you're out of state, you might be more drawn to, um, because those are not the schools where they're having problems filling beds. Um, right. it's the smaller campuses where they might exactly. be more interested and just I'm going a plug out for our archives which I try to mention in every show but we did a whole series on the different regions of the country and their reciprocity programs um, so if you want to search through the archives um, you can find us talking about that all right um Here's a question about the opposite situation. So um, if domicile for a traditional dependent undergraduate student is based on where their parents live, what happens when the parents, and I could see this actually in my future, the parent moves out mm-hmm. of state after the student has started college. So let's say my son ends up enrolling a University of Massachusetts at Amherst or another University of Massachusetts school. And then as soon as he graduates high school, I'm out. Um, What happens then? (laughs) Which might happen. You move to someplace warm and sunny. Um, Yes.
4: Yes. So you have to check the state. But I would say in most states, the student maintains their original domicile. Um, Sometimes there's a requirement that you graduated from a high school in that state. Um, I know I just researched this in Georgia for a student. and And in Georgia, the stakes are pretty big because there's a state scholarship program you can qualify for as well. And they actually specifically spell out in their regulations that if the parent moves Um, then you can, um, the student maintains their domicile or they maintain their in-state status. Um, In Minnesota, I know that it was based on if the student graduated from a Minnesota high school, it didn't matter where the parents moved. So I'm going to generalize, but I'm pretty sure that in most states, as long as you graduated from a high school in that state, they're not going to keep changing your residency if your parents move.
1: Got it. Good to know. Okay. Helpful. But don't make assumptions. Do research it. Yes. Okay. Good, good call. What about when maybe in a case of divorce where one parent maintains in-state status and the other student and the other parent is living out of state? Any particular rules there around could you have in-state status where the divorced parent now resides, which is not where you went to high school? It can
4: happen, for sure. I've definitely talked to families where it's happened. It does depend on the state. Um, and it may require some advanced planning, like, oh, okay, the parent that where that lives in the state needs to claim the student as a, as a dependent on their tax return. Um, so it, it just depends. Some states might have residency requirements. They might say, oh, you have to have lived with that parent. But they may not. They may just solely base it on that divorced parent. So double-check the rules, but that's definitely a situation where you might be able to get in-state residency, um, even if you didn't grow up in that state.
1: Got it. All right. We didn't have time to get to the whole graduate professional school piece, but maybe what we can do is bring that up in our next um, listener uh, Q&A that we do. And um, Kathy, as always, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you being here with us today. All
4: right. Great talking with you. Have a great day
1: all right you too Uh, don't go away we are doing office hours next and we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, making changes and sending new information after you have applied so we're kind of going to be extending the segment we did with Elise on the nuts and bolts of it to talk about a little more about the less about the how and more about the what Uh, so don't go away
3: visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I am excited to talk about updating colleges with new information when in the first segment today, we talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of submitting and how to tell if your applications have been received and then how to update colleges. So if you're interested in this, how the nuts and bolts of how to do it, I would encourage you to rewind and and listen more closely to the first segment or listen to the first segment if you skipped over it. It's a really good one. Um, Because... My guest today, Lauren Randall, who is my colleague here at College Coach and also a former admissions officer at Georgetown and a former college counselor uh, at some private high schools, we're going to be talking more about the, you know, when does it make sense to update, what do you want to update colleges with, you know, what's appropriate, what's not, that kind of stuff. So welcome, Lauren.
5: Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. All right. All right. So when I think about this idea, um, I think there are two ways that people think about new information. One is you've submitted your application and now you want to make a change versus you've submitted your application and now you have new information that you want to add. Um, so let's, let's talk about the first uh, idea first, which is the idea of making a change. And so you've press submit. You worked really hard. You listened to Elise's segment in the first part of the show. You did a PDF and you reviewed it and it all looked great. And then as soon as you press submit, right, Murphy's Law, you look and you realize, oh my goodness, (laughs) I (laughs) forgot to, I forgot a word here or I forgot to add an S onto that word there. So what happens when you notice a typo? Well, what you
5: should do is take a big, deep breath. It is Uh, Far more important to you, that one little word, the extra space, the wrong comma, it is far more glaring to you because you've put so much time and energy and effort into this application than it ever would be to an admissions officer. I have, I don't know anybody who can say that they've ever made a decision based on a a typo it just doesn't happen now I do think that there's some worse typos out there if you did a supplemental essay and you put the wrong name of the college so that's Mm -hmm. why I want to attend college x but you meant college y uh that's probably a little bit more significant but still we know students are are under a lot of stress and mistakes happen. So even in that case, it is not the end of the world. I just would assume you've recycled this essay. Um, but if it is a small typo, you need to relax and move on with your life. That is, does not constitute uh, uh, an emergency to reach out to the admissions office in my experience.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I do think if it's a big one, then you might want to. I'm not sure you want to try and submit a whole new essay, but in the case mm-hmm. of if you notice that you wrote the wrong school's name, I think an email or an update to the portal acknowledging that you are, you know, mortified that you did this and this was what you intended to submit. Um you could try. That that's a tougher one. And this is that that one I yeah. think really calls up the the whole importance of reviewing, and then maybe walking away from it for a day and coming back to it with fresh eyes um, and reviewing it one more time just to make sure you don't have something like that. Um, But I would agree. Little typos, two or three, uh, your admissions officer may not even notice them. And I think while you want it to be perfect, people are not perfect. I would take a breath and move on. What about Um, you submitted your application and then you got some kind of a second win and you wrote a brand new essay and you love it and you think this is the essay you really want them to consider. Uh, What do you do then? That's an
5: interesting one because I'll be honest, I've worked with a lot of students. I I have never had a student do that in the context of they applied regular decision and just didn't love their essay. So then a month later, in February, they submitted a new essay, or wanted to submit a new essay. In my experience, they're so happy to have it off their plate. Uh, It doesn't occur to them to keep writing. When I have seen a student come and ask this is if they've been deferred. So they applied at an early round with one essay, got the deferral notice, and they are convinced, that it was it was the essay it must be the essay. So they come back with new ideas and want to submit that. That's usually the context that I've seen um, that question come up. What I would what I always tell a first is how did you feel? How did you feel before you got the deferral notice? How did you feel about your essay? What did you think it was your best work? Did it sound like you? Is it the message you wanted the admissions officer to to hear? If it, if there was a confidence in it then the deferral notice should not change how you felt about your essay. Because the student wasn't in the room, they don't know if it was the essay or if it was uh, any, any other number or it might not have been, you know, something specific, which is the context of the broader applicant pool. So I usually tend to tell students to, to regain that confidence in what they first submitted.
1: Right. And I will tell you that you can't go and submit a brand new essay if you're deferred. Um, We wouldn't have considered it at Penn. Schools will tell you, please do not submit a new essay unless you are specifically Mm -hmm. asked to submit a new essay um, to a school where they've already read your application and considered it you know, and the off chance that you're wanting to do this for a school that hasn't rendered a decision yet. So you filed your application and now it's a month later. And like you say, you have rarely seen that happen. I have too, but I, it did happen every once in a while and both essays would be in the file. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, and really what it said more than anything was this was a student who wasn't fully prepared to submit. And that doesn't say much. That's good. Right. About you. <laughs> right. It's not a positive. Right. So I think that the negatives of submitting a brand new essay really outweigh um, any positive thing that you think is is possible. And I would say you have to feel good about what you're submitting. And the secret to that is starting early enough so that you're not doing it at the last minute. What about... Um, oh, I, yeah. Yep. No. Did you, did you have something to add before I move I on just to the next say, thing?
5: I, I, yeah, I just think it's important to, to, to highlight for students that even if the school will say, okay, well, we'll, we'll consider that extra essay. I have never seen the first essay just disappear. It's still in your file. So they are seeing, and if the second one is that much better, then again, it just shows me that you really rushed the first time and you should always be putting your best foot forward.
1: Yes, agreed. What about in the case, and I actually had this happen recently, where a student gets a recommendation letter that they, you know, from often maybe from an outside source, but maybe from some internal person, um, a teacher recommendation that you weren't anticipating, and you now have decided that even though you've submitted your application and your recommendation letters are in, you want to try and replace one of the recommendation letters with this new recommendation letter, or you want to add it to the file. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first
5: there is not a way to do that through the common application. Once it's submitted, it's there. They have those recommendations on file. So for you, most likely you'd be going directly to the admissions office um, attaching it by email or having your recommender uh, mail in a hard copy. So it, the it's a little bit complicated to, to actually ensure that it gets into your file. Um, it, it's unlikely that, that they're going to go through the effort of you saying, well, I want to erase Mr. Brown and add Ms. Smith. More likely, they're just going to put in all of them, if they receive it, into their file. And then if the admissions office says they're only going to read two, they're just going to read the two they grab first. Um, yep. Or if they're open to supplemental uh, recommendations, well, then it's just in there. Whether or not it helps, uh, it, I think there are some cases that a supplemental recommendation that maybe you didn't have the beginning, it could add value or context. Um, usually I, I see that from an outside source. I think it's rare for all of a sudden a third teacher to to show me something totally new that hasn't already been stated in one of the other recommendation letters. Um so I think those are some things to think about for, for recommendations. At the end of the day, I, I think it goes back to, we say, you know, more is just more. It's not necessarily better.
1: Yes, I think that's a big thing. And you really want to pay attention to schools that either maybe say, we don't accept recommendation letters. We only accept one. Please don't submit extra. You really want to follow those rules. Um Okay, what about the last change that I certainly see students thinking about, which is they've submitted their application, and now they want to change the major that they originally selected, or in some cases, at places where you apply to a specific school, they do that at Georgetown, you do that at Penn um, and in a number of other schools. Now you're saying, oh, you know what? I don't actually want to apply to that school. Can you please switch my application to this school instead? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all,
5: it might not be uh, as simple as, as just a switch. Don't forget that many schools have, many colleges have school-specific supplements.
2: So mm-hmm.
5: if you wrote, if you applied to Georgetown, to the business school, you had an essay uh, about why you wanted to study business. If you then contact me and say, "Well, actually, I want to be considered for the School of Foreign Service," well, I would have expected a whole new essay if I was even going to entertain that switch. Um, and if you didn't do it, well, now I'm reading a business essay for the School of Foreign Service, and that certainly didn't work. Um, right. So there might be more to it that you you can't just overlook. Um, again, I think in my in my uh, experience this also tends to go with the deferred students. They applied, yes. uh, to, let's say, the, business, or the school of foreign service at Georgetown were deferred and all of a sudden they think, well, it's going to be far easier if I applied to the College of Arts and Sciences. I want to be switched for regular decision. And that has never gone over well. At Georgetown, we did entertain um, the, the switch if they could make a compelling argument, write a new essay. But I don't, I can't remember offhand it ever being successful because, again, it's like that essay. I thought, well, you were confident in your in your early application. Are you, uh, are you now yeah. a serious applicant for this, for this new program?
1: Well, I, I totally, and I, we have the same experience at Penn. And I would say that unless you are being counseled to change schools, or like you said, unless there's a compelling reason for the all, all of a sudden switch, um, I would say I would avoid that change like the plague. Not a good idea. Um, right. It was, you know, it, often the kiss of death. Uh, for a deferred a student mm-hmm. to make that choice. Okay, so we have a couple more minutes. What, let's switch from the making a change to new information. In your opinion, what constitutes new information? Sure.
5: Well, first of all, I think it, it, it does need to be new. Let's just talk about that as opposed to repeating information of saying, um, I'm in all AP courses this year. I'm getting all A's. That's not new information if I had it in the the, uh, early round review. Mm -hmm. Um, But there could be uh, new testing. Um, So some students will have taken uh, the December um, uh, SAT or ACT or subject test in December. Um, That would not have counted in an early round. Um, But I think that's if it's an improvement absolutely make sure that gets to your regular decision schools um, for consideration. So that's new information. Um, grades, yes, is new because we're now looking at, at, your, at your first semester. Um, I, those are the two most important pieces to me, usually, um, in any kind of update. Uh, I want to see strong grades. I want to see strong testing. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps with activities or awards or honors. Um, from the school, if there's real accomplishments, so now a season has ended and you are an all-star on some level or a competition, um, you know, a real accolade, um, not just that we ended the, the football season with a, a winning record. Okay, well, that's great for your team, but I really want to know about what, what your contributions are and how uh, what kind of accolades or distinctions were made about you.
1: Right, absolutely. And I think that's important. It has to be personal to you, uh, and mm-hmm. or at least has to show that your role in it, and I would argue that your football team having a winning record because you caught the winning pass, that is great, but unless you're talking to the football coach, it's not particularly... And compelling for admissions point of view. What about? Um, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, Kimberly Aselta was on the show, and we talked a little bit about updating schools. And she mentioned that at some schools that she'd worked at, that hearing from the student maybe once a month or even potentially more frequently was fine. What are your thoughts, um, really quickly, about how frequently you should be updating the colleges?
5: Well, I always tell students that if it was a deferral. To hold off at least till the new year. Don't send that, that update the next morning. We know that it stings and you wanna reach out and do everything, but but hold your horses. I think it is appropriate um, in in January, towards the end of January, beginning of February, once those first semester grades are out, to, to give a, a more thorough report and an update. I think that's kind of the ideal timing. Um, whether or not the school is a once a month, to me that sounds like a lot, I think, for the most selective schools. Um mm-hmm. That tends to be overkill. I would say one solid update uh, sometime in January or early February is most appropriate.
1: I would agree. Lauren, thank you so much. And thanks to all my guests today. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're talking about prepping for group or faculty interviews, making New Year's resolutions, uh, and using Roth IRA to pay for college. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.